0: Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast. Episode 43, The Conquest of Mexico, Part 7. When I least expected it, we saw so many squadrons of warriors bearing down on us, and the lake so crowded with canoes, that we could not defend ourselves. Many of our soldiers had already crossed, and while we were in this position, a great multitude of Mexicas, Charged at us, removing the bridge and wounding and killing our men who were unable to assist each other. And as misfortune is perverse at such times, one accident followed another. And as it was raining, two of the horses slipped and fell into the lake. When I and others of Cortez's company saw that, we got safely to the other side of the bridge, and so many warriors charged on us that despite all our good fighting, No further use could be made of the bridge, so that the passage or water opening was soon filled up with dead horses, Indian men and women, servants, baggage, and boxes. Benal Díaz de Castillo, a true account of the conquest of New Spain. If last episode was a tense political thriller, with the events being largely subtle and without physical violence this one is the opposite. It's an action-packed sequence of battles and death. Spaniards will kill Aztec, Aztec will kill Spaniards, and Spaniards will kill Spaniards. There is a lot of killing to fit in, so let's get started. We ended last episode as Cortes discovered that Velasquez had sent an army after him, and that this army had landed at his base on the coast. Cortes would have heard that this was a large force, much larger than his own, at least in terms of Spaniards. He did have plenty of indigenous allies. He therefore could not just ignore this, or send a small force to deal with it. The idea may have tempted him, giving his precarious situation in Tenochtitlan, but no, he had to go himself, and he had to take the bulk of his forces with him. The man who Velasquez had sent was Panfilo de Narvaez, a relative of his. Narvaez was around 40 at this point, a Castilian described as having red hair and beard and a large frame. He had participated in the conquests of both Jamaica and Cuba, and in Cuba he had led a small force of men. Among his companions in Cuba were de Grijalva, the explorer, and de las Casas, the chronicler. De las Casas would later give Navieres special mention for his actions in Cuba, portraying him as particularly nasty and accusing him of committing a massacre. All of this made him a perfect candidate for Velázquez. Being a relation, he was also more likely to remain loyal. His job was not just to deal with Cortes, but also to fulfil Velázquez's original ambition once that was done to take Mexico for himself. Upon his arrival in Villarica, Narvaez learnt that Cortes had gone inland and only a small force remained at the settlement. He decided to head straight to Villarica and order the garrison to abandon Cortes and join him. Cortes had left de Sandoval in charge, so it was him that Narvaez made his demands to. The difference in numbers between Sandoval's tiny force and the newcomers would have been intimidating enough, but Narvaez also made legal arguments, playing on the lack of news that Sandoval and Cortes' expedition as a whole had access to. He told Sandoval that Cortes was viewed as a traitor by the king, and that Sandoval could save himself from being prosecuted if he joined him. Sandoval was having none of it, however. He refused outright, and sent messages to Cortes letting him know what was going on. I have read differing accounts of Narvaez's reasoning here, but whatever his thought process was, he made the strange decision not to take Villarica, or to pursue Cortes. Instead, he went to the largest Totonac city nearby, and through a mixture of charm and force he took it over. This would be his base. While this was going on, Cortes was leaving Tenochtitlan. He left behind his right-hand man, de Alvarado, to rule over the city, and he sent a message to Sandoval to come up towards him from the coast. They would meet at Slashkala. Once they had joined up there, they descended down from the plateau and approached Narvaez's army. Cortes was outnumbered as he almost always was during the conquest. And this time, he was facing Spaniards with the same weapons and tactical knowledge as himself. Narvaez's men were fresh, having just arrived, whereas Cortes's troops must have been tired from all their exploits in Mexico so far, including the march from Tenochtitlan they had just completed. On the other hand, his men were now experienced, Having taken part in some of the most difficult battles the Spanish had faced in the Americas. Even if some of Narvaez's men had taken part in conquests in the Caribbean islands, the organized peoples that Cortes had fought, as well as the general danger and hardship they had faced, probably made his men more capable. On balance, Narvaez should probably have won this battle, but Cortes. Used intelligent tactics to overcome his disadvantages. He didn't mess around. As soon as he got close, he identified Narvaez's artillery and Narvaez himself as key weapons. He split off a small part of his force and gave them the task of capturing the cannons. He gave Sandoval some men and told them to capture Narvaez. If they saw any opportunity to get close to him, they were to make that the priority. Narvaez was aware of Cortez's presence, and he was ready to face him. However, when he arrived, it was raining heavily. It was not good weather for battle, and when Cortez showed no sign of attacking, it appeared that both commanders had decided to wait it out until tomorrow. Cortez did wait the day out, but despite the rain not letting up, in fact because of it, he attacked that night and this surprise put Narvaez on the back foot. Sandoval managed to isolate Narvaez before he had even had the chance to pull his troops together. In the struggle to capture him, Narvaez lost an eye. We are told that he was stabbed in the face with a pike. The artillery was also captured quickly, and so before they had a chance to really fight back, all that was left was a group of surprised, confused and leaderless men. Cortes told them that if they surrendered, they could join him in the conquest of the Aztec, and to most of them, this was a no-brainer. Cortes had played his hand brilliantly. Not only had he not wasted his own much-needed men, but there had also hardly been any casualties on the other side. This maximized the importance of their defection to him. Gaining half a defeated army would have been useful, but gaining pretty much a whole one was even better. Narvaez was held prisoner at Villarica. He would be there for two years, and afterwards he would be sent back to Spain. He will play no further part in the story of the conquest. However, remember his name. We will be meeting him again in the not-too-distant future. With the threat dealt with, and bolstered by his new troops, Cortes turned straight back around, and began the march to Tenochtitlan. He must have been wondering what was going on there in his absence. Things had been so delicately poised, and with the majority of the Spanish forces leaving the city, in the face of rising discontent among the population, things could only have got more precarious. Upon his arrival in Tenochtitlan, Cortes discovered that things had not been going well at all. Right at the beginning of this series, I gave a quote, the one that described a massacre in gruesome detail. While well, this is what had happened in his absence. Predictably, Spanish and Aztec accounts as to what happened in the lead-up to the massacre differ. According to the Spanish, the Aztec population saw that Cortes had left, and that only around 120 Spaniards remained in the city. The tense situation got even tenser, and the Aztecs stopped providing the Spanish with food. Even Moctezuma, who had apparently come to establish good personal relationships with the Spanish, despite of, or perhaps because of, his situation, is said to have become cold and behaved more like you would expect a hostage to. The Alvarado, who was left in charge, was given information that the Aztec were planning to massacre them, so he decided to take action beforehand. The Aztec accounts don't mention any of this. They present the attack as completely unprovoked. It's hard to know exactly what happened. We know that de Alvarado had an aggressive temperament. It is certainly believable that without Cortes there to give the orders, he decided to attack I think the idea of an Aztec rebellion is just as believable, though. They were a mighty empire. They must have found it difficult to accept their situation. Many must have been growing impatient, and with Cortes gone, they must have thought that this was a great chance to sort things out. The Spanish had a motive to create the story of a plot to attack them. They needed to put their actions in the best possible light back home. However, There was enough reason to think that the plot might have been true, or that the situation was so tense that de Alvarado believed that they were in danger, even if they did not truly hear of any concrete plans to attack them. The atmosphere in the city was given even more energy by the fact that one of the biggest festivals in the Aztec calendar was to take place just 20 days after Cortes left. In fact, it was the human sacrifice that played a central role in the festival that is cited as another reason for de Alvarado's actions. Any non-Christian religious ritual would have angered the Spanish, but human sacrifice was especially disturbing for obvious reasons. The festival was called Toshkata, and it was to last 17 days. Before the festival started, a statue of Huitzilpochli was made and decorated with elaborate clothing, jewellery and feathers. This sounds like something that would come from the Spanish account, highlighting the brutality of the Aztec ritual, but it actually comes from the Aztec side. The statue was also given a cloak to wear, which was painted with pictures of dismembered human body parts. On the day of the festival, It was paraded through the streets, alongside other smaller statues. The people taking part in the procession danced as they walked, and offered the statue gifts of food. Eventually, they reached the sacred temple area, where the sacrifice was to take place at the top of the pyramid. It was at this point that De Alvarado intervened. He blocked off the exits to the square, and attacked. Now, Spanish and Aztec accounts alike agree on the details of the massacre. The Aztec were unarmed, and there was no real hope of fighting back. The Spanish moved in and massacred everyone they could find, and as there was no escape, this meant almost everyone there. The festival honored the Aztec army, and so many of its best fighters made up the bulk of the procession. It was these who were killed. The drums stopped, and everyone nearby would have seen the Spanish blocking the exits and heard the screaming. Soon the city's population arrived en masse, and started fighting back. There was no way of reaching the boats the Spanish had built to escape in just such a scenario. In fact, they were quickly burnt by the Aztec. Determined to get the Spanish, they also destroyed many of the causeways across the lake so that if the Spanish did try to escape, they could narrow their potential routes. Completely outnumbered, de Alvarado managed to barricade the Spanish inside Moctezuma's palace, taking the emperor with them. They were in there for 23 days before Cortes returned. When Cortes did arrive, he wasted no time in entering the city. While he did have a decent-sized force with him, it was not clear why he was allowed to march through Tenochtitlan and straight to the palace. That's what he did, though, and he was soon inside to relieve de Alvarado. It wasn't long, however, before the palace was attacked again, and he faced four days of attempts to storm it. The Spanish wheeled Moctezuma out to try and calm the crowd, but at this point they'd given up on him. They were tired with his inaction and apparently they threw stones at him when he tried to talk. In fact, they were so fed up that they took an unprecedented step. For the first time in Aztec history, it was decided that Moctezuma would be replaced as emperor, and his younger brother, Cuitlahuac, took his place. He would lead a proper Aztec resistance. While replacing a living emperor was a major step, something that would never have happened under ordinary circumstances. This step would have been forced upon the Aztecs soon anyway. It was around this time that Moctezuma died. Now just as with so many events during the conquest, how and why this happened is not agreed upon. Spanish accounts say that some of those stones which the Aztecs threw at him hit him directly, and that this was the cause of his death. It might be true, but of course, this is what they would say. Moctezuma had been the Spaniards' bargaining chip. His value balanced out the huge shortfall in soldiers they had compared to the Aztec. Now he was useless from that perspective, and given the brutality that the Spanish had already shown, it's plausible that they simply killed him, as some Aztec sources argue. The true circumstances of his death are another detail which we will never know. I feel I should pause here to mark Moctezuma's death, seeing as he is such an important character. However, I don't feel that there is much to add to what I've already said in previous episodes. His death, whoever did it, doesn't add anything new to the story of the last year or so of his life. Instead, it was the logical conclusion to it. It followed the same pattern. It was a sad and disappointing end, when compared to his life before the Spanish showed up. By the time it happened, however, it was, as he was, basically irrelevant. The Spanish now needed to find a way out their position inside the palace was untenable. They were running out of food, and while the palace was defendable, they were under constant attack, and if the Aztec did manage to break in, they wouldn't stand a chance. Breaking out, though, was almost equally dangerous. The palace was in the exact centre of the city, about as far from the exits as it was possible to get they would have to make their way through the streets and across the canals of the hostile city to the remaining causeway. Once they reached the causeway, as they made their way across the narrow strip of artificial land, they would be unable to form any proper defensive formation, and the Aztec were almost as at home on the water of the lake as they were on land. They would be able to attack them from their boats and easily shift position to avoid returning fire, while the Spanish could only advance forward, across the causeway. The one remaining causeway was also on the western side of the city, and so if they made it to the other side, they would be on the wrong side of the lake, and would have to march around. This was the heart of the empire. All the land they marched through would be heavily populated, and there were many towns and cities full of enemies they would have to pass. If they could survive all that, they would still have to march a great distance to the safety of Tlaxcalan territory. And although they had achieved great success so far, well, until recently, that is, now that things were looking dangerous, could they trust their Tlaxcalan allies to stick with them? On the one hand, if the Aztec recovered, the Tlaxcalan role in the conquest would not be forgotten, and they would surely be in deep trouble. On the other, perhaps the Tlaxcalans could try to take advantage of the situation by removing the Spanish from the picture and then going against a weakened Aztec empire themselves. It wasn't beyond the range of possibility that the Aztec would put aside their grievances so that they could get rid of the Spanish with the aid of Tlaxcalan. Cortes would need every advantage he could get in his attempt to get out of Tenochtitlan, and it didn't take a military genius to realise that the most powerful advantage he had was surprise. It was unlikely that he could smuggle his men out without being detected, but every block he could travel before an organised attack came could save some men. He therefore decided and His success against Narvaez probably played a part in this—that they would make their attempt at night. The Spanish and Tlaxcalans formed the best defensive formation as they could within the confined space of the city streets, and as silently as they could, they opened the doors to the palace and began marching. The Spanish went first, and the Tlaxcalans followed behind. It was raining. So perhaps the clouds made the night even darker by blocking out the light of the moon. The noise of the heavy rainfall may have helped hide the sounds they made as they marched. The Spaniards carried two things with them, one sensible and one decidedly not. In a smart move, they had built an improvised wooden bridge while inside the palace, and they used this to cross the canals quickly avoiding being funnelled across the existing bridges. Despite their desperate situation, however, they could not resist bringing as much gold as they could carry. Large amounts were set aside for the king, for Cortes and for his commanders, and then the men were all allowed to grab as much as they could carry. It can't have been easy to either run or proceed stealthily when you are weighed down by large amounts of metal. Amazingly, they made it a decent way through the city before anyone noticed them. They crossed three canals, but as they were bridging the fourth, a woman collecting water noticed them and raised the alarm. Almost immediately, they were spotted by a priest looking down from one of the pyramid temples. From up there, his shouts carried further, and it wasn't long before the whole city started waking up and heading towards Cortez and his men. There was nothing for it. They dropped any attempt at stealth, and ran as fast as they could, fighting off the first Aztec to reach them as they went. Soon they had reached the causeway, and were crossing it, but immediately boats appeared on both sides. There was little they could do to fight back as the Aztec boats shot arrows at them, and the men aboard them started climbing onto the causeway itself. All they could do was keep going as fast as they could, Spaniards and Tlaxcalans started falling. Some hit by Aztec weapons, some simply falling into the water as they slipped in the rain, dodging the arrows. Many drowned. At one point the causeway had been damaged, and initially they could not cross. Apparently, there were soon so many dead that the bodies filled the gap and the survivors continued on by walking across them. Cortes and a small group found themselves at the front and managed to break away, making him among the first to reach land on the edge of the lake. At this point, there was no attempt to maintain formation, everyone had to get there as best they could. The Alvarado arrived on foot soon after. He was bleeding from several wounds, and his horse had been killed as he rode it. For the next few hours, Spaniards and Tlaxcalans trickled in to Tlacopan, the town on the edge of the lake where Cortes had stopped. For anyone who knows Mexico City, Tlacopan is today's Tacuba neighborhood. That gives you an idea of the extent of the lake and the length of the causeways. Estimates vary, but Spanish casualties were in the hundreds and Tlaxcalan in the thousands. Cortes himself, in one of his letters, says that over 2,000 slash gallons and 154 Spaniards had died. It was likely more. Other sources give numbers like 450 Spanish, 600, and even 1,170, although the last one is probably too high. Pretty much all of the major characters survived somehow. Besides Cortes and de Alvarado, Sandoval, Olid, the de Castillo all made it, as did La Malinche and De Aguila. Velasquez de Leon, who we met in an earlier episode, the relative of the main Velasquez, did not make it. Neither did his new wife, the Tlashgalan leader Mashish Cattle's daughter. The last survivors arrived as the sun was beginning to rise, meaning that the whole ordeal lasted roughly five, six, maybe seven hours. We are told that for the first and only time, while waiting for the survivors, Carter has showed some emotion, becoming overwhelmed and upset by what was happening. I'm not sure if he himself coined the name, but the event became known as the Noche Triste, the Sad Night. It certainly was a sad night for the Spanish, but so far they had committed much worse atrocities, so I find the choice of name somehow amusing. Once they had gathered themselves together the best they could, the survivors began marching north and then east along the lake shore. They were constantly harassed by Aztec soldiers as they marched. These attacks were small-scale until about a week later when they reached a place called Otumba, today's town of Otompan. Here they found a proper army waiting for them. Despite their losses, the Spanish somehow managed to win the Battle of Otumba, but only just. One of the reasons I have seen given is that, despite having spent so long in Tenochtitlan, the Spanish and the Aztec had not yet fought a proper battle and so the Aztec did not know how to deal with the guns, horses, and ordered tactics of the Spaniards. The Noche Triste does not count, as there were no tactics involved except to run as quickly as possible. Perhaps a bit of luck was involved too. The Spanish managed to kill the Aztec general, and after this the army started to lose direction and confidence. Once the Aztecs started retreating, the Spanish immediately continued marching east, and three days later, they reached the safety of Tlaxcala. Here, they could recover and start planning their next move. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxsargent.com/slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, If you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash Max Sargent Photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening